Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll look at our story for today. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the story of Matthew. I thank you for his account. Lord, I thank you for uh, this tax collector who you transformed, who you changed from the inside out, who you allowed to uh, witness your life firsthand, to see and to touch you and to encounter all that you did um, on earth. And Lord, we thank you that by your spirit, you used him uh, to pin this account, the gospel of Matthew. And we've been in this book for a couple years now, and uh, we are at the very pinnacle, the, the, the jugular vein of the story that Christ stood in our place on the cross to be a substitute for us, to have the wrath of the Father poured out on him for my sin, for our sins, so that we might have life in him. And so, Father, as we go through this heavy story today, I I ask that you would help the weightiness of the story um, to settle deep within our souls, that you would help us to understand what Christ did for us in whole, not in part, as the old hymn says. Father, we sang a song that Jesus paid it all, all to him. I owe. I pray that that would be not something we just sing, but something that we live out, that we mean deep within our hearts. We pray for those, Lord, that are listening, that maybe don't know you as Savior. I pray that you would help them to connect the dots um, so that they would come to the place of saving faith in Christ. For those of us who have believed and trusted, Lord, I ask that you would help us, Lord, to, um, to, to honor you with our lives, with our thoughts, with our actions, with all that we are. Again, Lord, we ask you for our help, for your help, as we go through this story now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew 27, verse 45 to the end of the chapter. Now from the sixth hour, the darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and he gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appearing to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him kept keeping guard over Jesus. When they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. 
Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn in the rock. And he rolled away a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite of the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go. Make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. And Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, again, continuing from last week, I had mentioned that I appreciate humor. I like laughing. I like having fun up here. Um, but the story doesn't really allow for a lot of humor. This is, this is the crucifixion of Christ. We find ourselves sort of halfway in the story. Uh, Jesus was likely crucified about 9 a.m. in the morning. Uh, he's been up on the cross for about three hours. Last week, we sort of uh, covered some thoughts about um, the, 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 basically the, the flogging that he went through where they would take a whip with a bunch of uh, shards and items where they would uh, sling it on his back. It would stick to his back, and as they pulled it away, it would tear off the flesh. Many people would die during the process um, from the shock, the trauma, the, the bleeding out. Um, and Jesus was transported from there, or not transported, but, but moved from that location to the place of crucifixion, Golgotha, uh, the place of the skull or Calvary. And along the journey, a man had to help him out because he could no longer, um, he could no longer make his way uh, to the cross, carrying the cross beam that weighed likely between 75 and 100 pounds. Um, he was crucified, a a horrific uh, form of execution. It was in, invented um, by the Persians. I almost said the Parisians, but I don't think it was the. It wasn't the Parisians. It's Paris, I think, right? But it's a different story. Uh, the Persians, their god um, was was uh, the god of Hormuz, and he was the god of the earth. And so, to execute a prisoner on the the area that was controlled by their God was offensive. So they devised a way to crucify somebody off of the ground 
The Romans took crucifixion and they perfected it. They made it a, 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 a horrific event. It was so terrible that a Roman citizen could not be crucified. Um, the only exception is uh, Caesar had the authority to authorize some, a Roman citizen to be executed. Um, there are many ways that a person could die on the cross. Most likely it was asphyxia or, or basically drowning. Um, on the cross, when the person was in the sort of, if you can call it the relaxed state, um, their lungs would be filled with air. And in order to take a breath of air or to exhale the air that is in their lungs, they would have to stand upon the nail that went through their ankles, uh, pull their shoulders kind of together to hoist up their back, which they were naked on the cross. And you had a, a, a back that was torn open from the, from the, the beating he took. You could exhale at that point, and then you would go back down to a full inhalation. Um, they would speed up the process. of It could take days, and because of the holiday, uh, not Matthew doesn't record it, but we see that the other two guys, their legs were broken, and that sped up the process of dying because if the legs are broken, you can't stand up to exhale. Um, the word excruciating comes from crucifixion. This is where when you say I have an excruciating headache or I'm in excruciating pain, the, that word comes from the cross. And so this is where Jesus has been for the last three hours. He has three more hours to go before he uh, gives his life. Um, I, I don't think he, I mean, he dies, but it's not like his life was taken from him. He surrenders his life on the cross. And so we pick up the story here in verse 45. He's been ridiculed by the passerbys. He's been ridiculed by the soldiers. He's been ridiculed by the religious people. And we read now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. So this is a, 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 a supernatural event occurs. The sixth hour is 12 p.m., the ninth hour is 3 p.m. So from from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., a three-hour window, there's nothing really documented during this three-hour window other than it was total and complete darkness. Some uh, skeptics have tried to say, oh, this was like a solar eclipse, or uh, which isn't possible, but it was a full, it was a full moon. Uh, they don't last that long. There's extra... Biblical writing, so sources outside of the Bible, which document that, that, that the Roman Empire documented that for some reason darkness happened in their whole known area that they, they controlled. So for three hours, the light of the world basically is extinguished. We know that the weight of um, the sin of the world was placed upon Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And it's almost as this is happening, the world is testifying to the realities of what is happening. And I, and I can't imagine with the, the onlookers, those who had just crucified Jesus, Pilate, who didn't think that Jesus is innocent, who didn't think he was guilty, to see some of these um, apocalyptic sort of events that are about to occur, that it just goes dark at noon. It, it had to have been terrifying. We, we see that in our story today that a soldier is going to 
basically, this has to be the Son of God. But Matthew just tells us that it went dark for three hours. And in verse 46, we're told about the ninth hour. So I don't know if it's, I mean, I wasn't there. There's not video of this. I don't know if it was like a sunrise where it starts to get light again or if it just lights just pop on. Um, but, but around the ninth hour, so I don't know if we're still in darkness or if we're in light now. We don't know. But at, at the end of this three-hour window, we're told that Jesus cries out with a live, loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a direct quote from Psalm 22, which I mentioned last week. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm written hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, um, sort of detailing the events that would happen to Jesus on the cross. And so Jesus quotes, he, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, it's interesting, one commentator or a couple commentators point out, I didn't actually do a word study to verify what they said. Uh, but they noted that this is the only place where Jesus refers to the Father not as the Father. That on the cross, when he communicates with the Father, he says, my God, my God. In all of the other events, apparently, he refers to the Father as his Father. Um, but here, as the wrath of God is uh, being pressed upon him, uh, uh, that there's some separation that happens between the father and the son, which is far greater than my man, my mind can comprehend. But I'm in good company. Martin Luther um, was said at one point he wanted he he was wrestling with this idea that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So. Um, it was said that Martin Luther spent a couple weeks or an extended period of time where he went into isolation just to sort of study and to focus and to meditate, trying to get some understanding about this, this idea of, of separation, this idea of forsaking. And we're told that when he came out of isolation, he said, oh, I'm more confused than before I started. I have no idea. This is beyond me. Uh, John MacArthur says that the mystery of the separation is far too deep even for the most mature believer to fathom. The idea that the second person of the Trinity is separated on the cross from the Father, it's, it's beyond our, our comprehension. But we know that the weight that is placed upon Christ is huge at this point. And as he cries out, Eli, Eli, some of the people standing by, there's some confusion. They think, oh, well, maybe he's calling out for Elijah. Look at verse 47. And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, they began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. So, so it almost appears that there's some confusion, like, well, maybe God didn't come to, like, rescue him, but maybe Elijah's supposed to come back. We, we know this from Malachi, that, that this great prophet uh, Elijah's not done with his ministry. And maybe, I mean, darkness just happened. Some crazy things are happening. So maybe in this, maybe he's calling out for Elijah. 
One guy goes to get him some wine to kind of help uh, with the dryness of his mouth. In the other accounts, if you read through Psalm 22, it says that his, his tongue sticks to the top of his mouth because he's so dry and dehydrated that, that they're trying to help him. Someone says, let's just see what's going to happen. And here we're told in verse 50 that Jesus cries out with a loud voice. This is not a man who is having his life taken from him. He is able to... to, to to yell out something. It is finished. Uh, Teleos, the idea of a telescope, that that the end has brought complete. We're told that he yielded his spirit, which is a powerful word. This isn't that his life was taken from him. It's that he surrendered his spirit, that he gave his life so that we might have life in him. It is finished. It is at this moment... In human history, where salvation becomes possible. Changed the world. Changed their lives. It changed my life. This is, this is a powerful, powerful moment. And we're told at this moment, verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Uh, we don't have the stats on the veil. Some have speculated it was like 60 feet high. Um, the veil was not in a location where people could see it. So inside of the temple, separating the holiest of holies from the outer part, uh, Josephus writes of it, saying that it was like 60 feet high and the width of a hand. So like four inches, that this is the width of this veil. So it's not like a lace cloth that could easily be torn. Josephus goes on to say that if you took horses, you could not tear it in half. Uh, with their strength. Now, now we don't really know. This is speculation. There, there was much secrecy around the veil because only priests would have access to even to see it, to touch it. It was the high priest once a year that was allowed to go into the holiest of holies to sort of take care of things for God. And we're told that it's torn. Matthew records not that it was like torn like this, that it was torn from heaven to earth. And there seems to be a symbolic action that, that God is the one who's initiating um, the, this divide in the veil. The, the vi- veil's tearing in half seems to point to that God is satisfied with the sacrifice that has been made on the cross. There's now access into the holiest of holies. They no longer have to go on offering animals over and over and over again that the sacrifice has been made. The the, the theological concept of this veil touring is so significant. Um, I'm not going to expand it on a whole whole lot right now, really at all, other than we have access, the divide has been broken, we now have access to God. But I think this is a huge part of the book of Hebrews which talks about this access that we have now in Christ, and which is really the reason that I was motivated to try to, I'm kind of, and there's a side of me that's scared to death to go through Hebrews the rest of the year, but then it's like, I really want to go through Hebrews. I'm excited about it. But but Hebrews talks about this huge theological, from from a Jewish priestly perspective of what Christ accomplished on the cross on our behalf that now gives us access to the Father. It's It's huge. Last week, I was 
contemplating that whole scene about the praetorium where they're mocking Jesus and they're beating Jesus and they're playing these uh, in the in the SEAL teams, we would call them like reindeer games. I don't know if the rest of the military uses that term where you're, well, we wouldn't call it hazing, but, you know, tomato, tomato, you know, whatever you. But they had these games that they played with prisoners. There were no Jews inside of the praetorium. And so if we're reading about what happened to Jesus inside of the praetorium, it tells us that one of those soldiers or a number of those soldiers came to Christ and then they began sharing with the early church the things that were happening back there uh, to the soldier at the cross today that says, this has to be God. Well, the same thing is true about this veil being torn. This veil could have been torn from top to bottom and nobody would ever, ever know about it because only the priest had access to this. They could have hidden this. But in Acts 6-7, we read, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith So as the whole death, burial, resurrection of Christ occurs, there were many priests, many of these Pharisees who came to faith in Christ and they began sharing the things that supernaturally happened in this private area. It's 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 overwhelming. It's powerful. And to think of the scope of people from the, you know, from the very top echelon of the soldier, if this is from a military guy, you know, (laughs) to the religious guy on the bottom. But it's probably the other way around um, that this wide gamut of people in the midst of this, they're receiving the good news and responding. Like if you're here today, if you're alive, if you're listening to this, that that there's hope for all of us that Christ's work on the cross is totally and completely sufficient. And then from here, an earthquake happens. The earthquake shook and the rocks were split. And then one of very difficult passage happens. Uh, The New American Commentary says this about verse 52 and 53. It says, it is perhaps the most unusual in all of the Gospels and only found in Matthew. This is one that sort of like it got lost on my radar. And a few weeks ago, I'm like, wait, what is this story? Like, I don't remember this one. Like that the tombs were opened. So an earthquake happens, tombs were opened. We're told many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And if we're reading, we're thinking this is happening as Jesus dies on the cross. But if you read into verse 53, Matthew sort of intertwines these these events between his death on the cross and the resurrection. Because he says, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city to appear to many. So in the, the midst of his telling this story, Jesus yields up his spirit. He dies. The veil is torn. An earthquake happens. Then he sort of broadens the timeline. So there's just so many questions. Like, who are these? Who are these saints? The the, the whole hill. um, So if the temple, I'm using my hands a lot today. I should. So there's the temple that's up on a hill. If you go down the hill to the Kedron Valley, there's another hill that we know of the Mount of Olives. It's a totally white hill. There's tombs there. So I don't know if those are the tombs we're talking about, that in the earthquake, these tombs split open or cracked open, and there's bones there. And then these bones at some point come to life, and we're told that they basically, at the resurrection, they enter the holy city. Like, Who are these saints? I don't have a clue who these people are. It's not documented anywhere else. 
Who do they appear to? Like, I'm just trying to imagine. They go into the old city of David, like, hey, guys, I've been wanting a coffee for a long time. And we like, like, we don't know. Like, like what happened to them? Did they, did they eventually die or did they ascend into heaven like Elisha? Like, I, I don't know. What was the purpose of all of this? Matthew doesn't tell us. So we can reason it away. We can accept it, which I believe that this is true. This happened. It's here in the scripture. But I just sort of have to leave it at that. At the death of Christ, all of these things, crazy things are happening. It goes dark over the whole earth. Earthquakes start happening. The veil is torn in two. All of these things, creation is crying out that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And in verse 54, this seems to be the response of the people. So the centurion, a soldier who would have been, who would oversee a, a hundred soldiers. And not just him, it's very easy to lose track of the next. So it's the centurion, but it's also and those who are with him. So there's a group of individuals at the foot of the cross connected to this centurion. And as he's watching Jesus die, this is a guy who's experienced in death. Rome executed tons of people. This guy is, doesn't get sick to his stomach over one execution or another. I'm, this guy could execute a guy and eat a Subway sandwich, no problem. Like, I, I don't, like, this guy is not a guy who's sensitive to death. But in the midst of Jesus' death, as the earth goes dark, as earthquakes start happening, However, these resurrected bodies factor into the story. I don't know. But this guy and those who are with him, they're in sheer terror. It said that they were keeping guard over Jesus. And when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became frightened. That word frightened is literally they were terrorized. Like, like the worst of all horror movies. Like what is going on here? Scared for their lives. And they said, truly, this was the son of God. This wasn't just some criminal. It's powerful. I don't know if these guys came to faith. Maybe you could. I think it's an easier case to to make that they came to faith than they didn't come to faith. Like, um, but to think that these guys who are involved in the crucifixion story, that as the body of Jesus is on the cross, that they could have a change of heart and come to belief in Christ as their savior. It's such a beautiful picture that it's never too late to do the right thing with God. If you're alive, then there's still hope for you. And then we come across this other beautiful picture that now the men are long gone. I'm sure all of the women want me to point this out to you that the men have scattered. We know that John came back eventually, like he works his way back. But these women are absolutely saints. They are this is a beautiful picture in the scriptures. These, these women were told, many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee. So they've been ministering to Jesus this whole time. And this word ministering, it's literally the word deacon, like servant. Uh, so they've been deaconing to him. They've been ministering to him, caring for him, how, however they could. And among them was Mary Magdalene. And Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. It's just a beautiful scene. The men are gone. The women are there staying faithful. They're caring for Jesus as best they know how. Um, Without making a big 
thing, it's important to point out that that women are critical within the body of Christ. Um, Unfortunately, there are some that have so segregated and got off track from what the Bible actually says. Women play a vital role in the body of Christ. Uh, Women can minister and care for others in ways that men simply cannot. Amen? Uh, It's okay to... I mean, I saw it in my household. I'm out for the count. Asking Anna, I'm like, well, what do you do to stop throwing up? Is there something I can eat or is there something I can drink? Is there? And she's like, you are a moron. Like, are you like, I'm like, I need ice chips. Give me ice chips. I need something. I'm like dying in my bed. She's throwing up, like doing all of her stuff, caring for the kids, taking care of it. I'm like, how do you do it? I don't know. Like how? She's like, you're just a big baby. I'm like, what's the secret? Like, what are you I'll move on. Verse 57, now we get to the burial of Christ. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Now, this is a very wealthy man. This is a man that we believe to be on the Sanhedrin. He was a powerful religious leader. He had come to faith in Christ, but it was in secret. Uh, He'd stayed on the sidelines. I don't know what role he played, what he did or didn't do in the midst of the proceedings of bringing uh, Jesus's trial uh, to the place where, where crucifixion happened. But he was there and he was a man of influence, so much so that he could go to Pilate's door. What are you guys doing back? Killed the guy. He's been executed. Leave me alone. But that he could go knock on Pilate's door as a Jewish man alone and have a basically an encounter with Pilate and say, listen, he's dead. Please give me authority to take his body down so that we can give it a proper burial. And that Pilate would listen to him and say, yes, you got it. His, his secret faith is sort of morphed into courage I think at this point, it's like, what, what's the point? He doesn't care about hiding himself. He sees Jesus on the cross to up to this point, they would be left on the cross to be eaten by animals, to sort of be left for days, weeks on end to be shamed. And we're told in verse 59 that Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. And he laid it in his own tomb. Now, in the other accounts, we see that there's another man, Nicodemus, that comes into play. Nicodemus was another man on the Sanhedrin, another secret believer of Jesus. Remember in John 3, being born again. So Nicodemus comes and he brings the spices to prepare the body for burial. So these two very wealthy, very powerful men, they come and they prepare Jesus' body. It's 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 beautiful. We're told that he laid it in his own tomb, which had been hewn into the rock. These tombs were like rooms for your family. If you had somebody buried there, you couldn't bury another. You couldn't bury another person there. So this is a new tomb. And by laying Jesus's body, now this tomb is isolated only to Jesus. And Jesus is only going to use it for the weekend. And and it's like, like, but the, the tomb is no longer usable. And then they roll away a stone to the entrance of the tomb and they went away. And the reason I think this is so beautiful is this is like 
these two men are doing what they can do to express this final act of love. I, I, uh, I have Kleenex in my pocket because like, all I can think about in doing this, trying to imagine the, the, the closest thing I can come to this. Like I tried to warn Anna and I tried to warn Grace. Grace was there during the first service. And I like at dinner time, I'm like crying last. I'd say, I think I'm supposed to say this, but I don't know how, if I can. Eat. I'm like crying at dinner saying, I don't even think I can say it at dinner time. But in September, Anna's grandpa died. Grandpa Hilton. And all of you guys that know me, you know about Grandpa Hilton, super huge cowboy, Cowboys fan, and uh, he died. And at his funeral, he's got so many family members. And after the service, they're the pallbearers are going to take him to the vehicle, then to the gravesite. And I said as much cowboy, so it wasn't really organized. So they kind of had identified pallbearers, and I'm so low on the pecking order that I don't qualify really to be included in the pallbearer sort of like schematics. But as they're sort of getting everything ready to be transported, I'm sort of just standing there. Like, I'm going to pay, I'm going to be there, and I'm going to like show my love and whatever I can do. And finally, Uncle Russell says, Gunner, I can't carry him. You want to be a pallbearer? I'm like, absolutely, I want to carry his casket. And I want to show him my love in this last act and carrying him to his gravesite. And this is what I see of these two men. Like Jesus is dead. He's gone. But they want to demonstrate how much they love him by publicly going there. And this totally humiliating thing that a naked Jesus is on the cross, totally mocked, ridiculed in front of everybody. And they are going to put down their pride. They're going to take them off the body, they're going to invest money, they're going to give of what they have, and they're going to give them a proper bear. It's just beautiful. And after they button it up, these women are still there. Now everybody's gone. Verse 61, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite of the grave, and I just see them sitting there broken. I see them sitting there grappling with the finality of death that we all grapple with. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that eternity has been placed in our hearts. And so when we face death, something within us short circuits. We are not created to comprehend death. We are not created to be able to handle with it at at all. And so when we're faced with it, it breaks us. Even as Christians, it's hard for us. But we have, we have the hope, we're told that we don't grieve as others do, but we still grieve. We have the hope of the resurrection. We know the story doesn't end here. But they're sitting there, behind that rock is the body of the man that they loved dearly, the man that they saw miracles happen. The, the, this man who was everything to them is behind that rock, and they're just broken. And this scene sort of ends, if this was a play. By the time we come back to verse 62, a day has elapsed. It's the next day. There's actually a little bit of humor in these last few verses. I'll show you if, you, if you'll bear with me a little bit. You're trapped, so you have to bear with me. So. Uh, so now on the next day, the day after preparation... The chief priests and the Pharisees gather together with Pilate. So I see these guys. They're so tired. I mean, they've. So they take Jesus into custody the night. They're up all night trying to figure out how they can press charges of Jesus. Then by sunrise, they have the charges. Then they have to go out and they have to present their case to Pilate. 
Then they spend a couple hours presenting their case. Then Jesus is nailed to the cross. So they're up most of the day. These guys have got to be exhausted. Finally, Jesus is crucified. He's laid to rest. They're all at home, sort of. They probably called it a night at 7 p.m. saying, let's just watch some Netflix and call it a night because I'm exhausted. And so they're laying there, and one of them falls asleep. And I just sense him at like 1 in the morning, like, he said he was going to rise from the grave (laughs) three days later. We need to do something to stop this. Now, I don't know exactly how it's set, but eventually it's the, the irony that they remember that Jesus said that he was going to rise from the grave. It strikes him. They panic. They go to Pilate. And they said to him, verse 63, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. It was bad enough that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah for them. He had a huge following. But the idea that his body could be taken, and then they could perpetuate this story of the resurrection, they say, this will be way worse. This will be way, like... The sky went dark yesterday, the earthquake. We all know about the veil, but I don't know if this is public knowledge at this point. If they get that body, this is going to be our undoing. We need to do something. And so they go back to Pilate, and I think Pilate's like, why are you guys coming back? Like, I did everything you said. Will you just go away? It's been suggested by more than one commentator that, that Pilate's response He's harassing them. He's teasing them. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it. Make it as secure as you know how. We're told that they went to the grave and secured it along with the guard, and they set a, steel on the, a seal on the stone. Uh, one, Matthew Henry, who's like so long-winded at times, it's hard to sift through what he says for me. Um, but he writes, like he points out this banter. He says, methinks the word make it as secure as you can looks like a banter because there's two options. One of their fears, he basically says, uh, be sure to set a strong guard upon a dead man. He's like, well, if you're so afraid of this guy being stolen, he's a dead guy. So, yeah, I'll give you my army guys. Like, go, you can keep watch over a dead man. He's dead. Why do you need to watch a dead guy? I'm on the cemetery board of Valley Center. We do not have guards watching the inmates over there. (laughs) Like, I don't like that they're going to, like, we know they're secure. Like, they're not going any, like, there's, there's, you don't have to guard a dead body because the body's not going anywhere. So it's like, oh, you need a guard to watch a dead person? Okay. He goes on to say the other option or of their hopes, um, do your worst, try your wit and strength to the utmost, but if he is of God, he will rise in spite of all your guards. He says the second option is even the worst, guys. He's like, I saw the sun go dark. I saw everything happen. I saw the earthquake. If he's God, and if he's going to rise from the grave, you having a guard there is going to do absolutely nothing for you. Your problems are just about to begin. And I kind of think that that's what he's saying. Sure, take my guard. Make it as secure as you can. They go there. They seal it up with wax. They put the signet ring. Okay, these, he's not going anywhere. And next weekend is Easter. We know the story ends in the resurrection. We know that Christ overcomes the grave. We know uh, that he's conquered death so that we no longer have to fear death. 
But, but today we're on the cross. And I, and I can't help but to shake that Jesus, when he went to the cross, he was using Barabbas' cross. And he stood in Barabbas' place. He stood in our place. And that we each are Barabbas, that I am Barabbas. It's overwhelming to think that Jesus would take what I deserved. I don't think we can comprehend this great love. I, I want to end with a story that I think sort of highlights how much he loves us. Author and speaker Brennan Manning has an amazing story about how he got the name Brennan. While growing up, his best friend was Ray. The two of them did everything together, uh, bought a car together as teenagers. They double dated as teenagers. They went to school together and so forth. They even enlisted in the army together, went to boot camp together and fought on the front lines together. One night while sitting in a foxhole, Brennan was reminiscing about the old days back in Brooklyn while Ray listened and ate a chocolate bar. Suddenly, a live grenade came into the foxhole, and Ray looked at Brennan, smiled, dropped his chocolate bar, and threw himself on the live grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but Brennan's life was spared. When Brennan became a priest, he was instructed to take on the name of a saint. He thought of his friend, Ray Brennan, so he took on the name Brennan. Years later, he went to visit Ray's mother in Brooklyn. They sat up late one night having tea when Brennan asked her, Do you think Ray loved me? Mrs. Brennan got up off the couch, shook her finger in front of Brennan's face and shouted, What more could he have done for you? Brennan said that at that moment, he experienced an epiphany. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus wondering, does God really love me? And Jesus' mother, Mary, pointing to her son, saying, what more could he have done for you? And Father, we do thank you for this great love that was displayed on the cross by Christ. Lord, I don't think that we can fully understand what he went through. I don't think we understand how great, how vile our sin is before you. We confess we take our sin way too lightly. We take your grace way too lightly. But Lord, I pray this week as we head to Good Friday, as we head to Easter, these are Great reminders in our calendar to focus and to think upon uh, the gravity of what Jesus did on our behalf. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand in a greater depth how bad our sin really is and how separated we are from you in our own strength and our own might. Help us to really get a hold of how desperate we are. And as we think about that darkness, as we feel the weight of our separation from you, we ask that the glory of the cross would shine forth.
that we would understand in part how much Jesus suffered on our behalf. We ask that you would help us to understand the sufficiency of the cross that he paid for our sin in whole, not in part, as that old hymn says. Father, we thank you that in Christ, on the cross, your wrath was satisfied. That our debt has been paid complete. We thank you that in him we have life. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to live our lives surrendered to you in all respects. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.